All right, so I get the uh, great privilege of introducing to you guys um, our guest this morning. He's a friend, he's a mentor. If you guys were here at First Wednesday, you got to hear him speak. Uh, it is Rick McKinley. And so Rick, if you wanna make your way up here. Um, yeah, give him, a, give him a hand. And just uh, a little bit about Rick. Um, Rick is coming to us from Portland, Oregon, and uh, he is the lead pastor of Imago Day Community up there. If that church name sounds familiar, it's because that's where Josh Butler, our own, came from. Uh, Josh was there for 15 years, and uh, Rick was the lead pastor there, and then Josh was obviously pastoring alongside of him. But Rick has also uh, written five different books, phenomenal books. He is uh, nationally, he's kind of a leading voice in issues around faith, culture, and the church. And so, um, Rick, thanks for being here, man. And uh, we will be blessed by uh, what he's going to share from God's Word with us this morning. So, thank you. This will help. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you, even though you stole Josh and Holly, but that's okay. One of the things that's been fun for me over the years is to just watch um, leaders like Josh and Holly grow. They were so they were in their early 20s, maybe not even 20s, 20, when they uh, started coming to Imago, and to watch God call them and gift them, to see them get married and to start a family and to kind of anoint them. And then to come here and see all the beautiful things that you all are doing is really, really exciting. And so you are well-led and well-loved by so many great leaders and pastors here that love you. And so I hope you know that and don't make life too hard on them. <laughs> kind of joking. Okay. So they gave me this passage and um, I was kind of like, okay, that's a fascinating passage. But, but one of the things that I was thinking in Portland, so how many of you have been to Portland ever? Yes. Yeah, that's about what we get everywhere we go. <laughs> a couple golf claps uh, and a lot of news coverage. Um, Portland is not, people call Portland post-Christian. Portland was never Christian. There was never like that. Oh, remember the time when we were, uh, you know, the Bible Belt of? No, there was never, there was never like a Christian moment. And so, because of that sort of very um, progressive culture, people, when they come to faith, sort of have this almost embarrassed feeling about it. We, uh, I'll never forget a couple years ago, we baptized this girl and she came to faith and she said, I, I mean, I encountered Jesus. I had this incredible experience. And then I realized like a, a day later, like, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian. <laughs> and, and that sense of like being embarrassed about being a Christian, you know, and and that isn't that abnormal. Have you ever been embarrassed about being a Christian? Okay, we have one honest person and a lot of liars. So this is a very normal church. Um, 
I mean, there's, there's reasons that you would be embarrassed. Public perception of Christianity is not very strong. Uh, what, a Christian, what, what Americans think Christianity is, it, it's a political movement, or um, even what Christians themselves say about what it means to be a Christian. Lifeway, which is a, a big sort of Southern Baptist um, group, did a poll recently about um, what evangelicals believe. And a third of evangelicals said they believed that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Which means a third of evangelicals, Christians, are not Christians, <laughs> which is problematic. And so, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there are reasons that you would be hesitant to be a Christian, even if you're compelled by the person of Jesus. Because it seems the church can often seem more interested in um, issues that are not spiritual, political issues and social issues, but not spiritual issues. There's so much hypocrisy in the church. Christian leaders failing in scandal. Christians seem to condemn other people but never point out their own sin. And then if you just don't go to church at all but you watch TV, like people that believe in God or Jesus, they're just always the idiot, right? They're never like the thinking, well-read sophisticated person. They're just always the fool. And in places like Portland, to believe in God, to believe that there is such a thing as a need for forgiveness or a need for salvation, that is seen as morally oppressive by some. And so there is a reason that people may feel embarrassed. There'd be a lot of reasons you might keep your faith in Jesus a secret. And apparently this is nothing new. Because even during Jesus' day, there were disciples who kept their faith a secret. It says of Joseph that he was a disciple, but was a disciple secretly. Now, he was a disciple secretly because of fear of the Jews. In some cultures, people are secretive about their faith because of persecution. It's happening today around the globe. And in other cultures like ours, people are secretive about their faith because of being embarrassed. There are good reasons people have not publicly align themselves with Jesus, and it goes all the way back to the very days when Jesus walked the earth, as we see in this story. These people, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, are called secret disciples. Now, the name itself seems like an oxymoron, right? Secret disciples. Doesn't being a disciple of Jesus, assume that you're outspoken about belief in him. Doesn't assume you listen to like uh, Way FM and like wear crosses around your neck and t-shirts and 
WWJD bracelets. Like, how can you be a secret disciple? There are there are companies who make apparel for this uh, that you can like brand yourself. But apparently, it's not the case. There were people, including Joseph and Nicodemus, who were. So throughout history, around the world, right up until this very moment, there are people who may believe in Jesus, but have not declared their faith publicly. Even this morning, even in this room, some of you are secret disciples. And I'm not saying that to shame you. Uh, For whatever reason, you have not come to the place where making your faith public has made sense to you. And even for those of us who maybe have been public about our faith, many of us are selective about who we are with when we're talking about our faith or where we are public about our faith. This probably seems like a fairly safe place to be public about your faith Um, since we're singing about it and all those sorts of things. You don't have to really hide it. Um, and yet when you go to work, when you're at school, when you're in your neighborhood, like there are just settings that you might not feel like you can be outspoken. And I get that. I I really do get that. Sometimes there are some very outspoken Christians that you don't want to be associated with. I became a Christian when I was 18 and we had never been to church in uh, my life before that. And, and so I graduated, graduated in the late 80s, and uh, I went to Chico State, which is in Northern California, because it was the number one party school in the year uh, of the year. And I thought, well, that's something that I could pursue and give my life to and really go hard at, you know, and make my family proud. And, um, and I kind of I just dropped out after a year and came home and was sort of spinning out. And for whatever reason, I walked into church one day and it happened to be Palm Sunday. I literally thought they were going to read my palm. I I didn't have, like, I didn't, I know it's funny, but it's not a joke. I didn't know. I mean, nobody that doesn't go to church thinks it's like palm branches. It's just like, it's Palm Sunday. I was like, oh, okay, what? I don't know. What am I next? Um... And so quickly, you know, I heard the gospel all week. I, was, I heard about Jesus and him dying for me and raising again. I was like, yes, I encountered this love and this forgiveness. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. That was my confession of faith. I'm going to do this. And my dad said, if you go to church, those people come to your house. And I was like, what, is, what do you know about going to church? Like, we've never been to church. And sure enough, like 10 days later, the doorbell rang and there were these two dudes in suits. And I was like, he was right. (laughs) They come to your house. But there was an older guy that I remember um, sort of discipling me. And he was talking about being a witness and being a witness at his office. And the way that he witnessed at his office as a Christian was he had a cussing jar, and anybody in his office that cussed had to put a quarter in the jar. And I remember, even though I was new in faith, thinking, like, that's a really weird way to tell these other people that you're a Christian by making them 
pay you for their sins. <laughs> when the whole point of this thing is supposed to be Jesus paid for our sins, and you're like hustling, and they're not even like believing this thing, and you're like charging them. Like, so yeah, I get it. If, I, if that guy works in my place, I'm probably like, yeah, I don't know what I believe. I'm, I'm into Muslim stuff, you know? Like, I might not associate with Jesus in that place. And as I said earlier, the statistics, there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian right now. And so what I want to look at today are these two secret disciples. I want to see what we can learn from them. And we're going to look at four things. Okay, what is the upside of being a secret disciple? What's the downside? What made them finally go public and then what's the cost of going public, all right? Four things. The upside, the downside, what made them go public, and what's the cost? So the upside. The upside is they had a lot on the line. Nicodemus and Joseph are very influential. They're part of the Sanhedrin, and so they have leadership um, that is very influential. We know that Joseph like gets an audience with Pilate. Peter can't get an audience with Pilate. He has a voice in government. Nicodemus, because of his influence, that when the trial of Jesus starts, can advocate for Jesus to get a fair trial. So even in Nicodemus's mind, as we read earlier in the gospel, I think he can sort of justify himself that at least I'm in the room, at least I can sort of advocate that Jesus is treated fairly. And they could use these positions of influence. They can ask for Jesus's body off the cross. And so it's possible that you can serve Jesus and his purposes by being winsome, by being secretive in places of power or places of influence that the Father has placed you. Many missionaries throughout the world are doing this right now on research visas and uh, teaching visas and other places that are winsomely, secretively, missionaries, but are doing it um, somewhat secretively. It's also the path of least resistance. We know that it is out of fear of the Jews that Joseph is being secret about his faith. He doesn't want to deal with the persecution. People won't disrespect you. You won't have to apologize for God's messed up people, which some of us have to do a lot. You won't have to apologize for your own messed up personhood, which I have to do more than others, right? And so you end up, the upside is you avoid the cost of following Jesus. And if we're honest, if we're just like pragmatic about it, there is an upside to that. The downside, though, is that you do live with a divided heart towards God. Uh, there's sort of no way about it. And we, 
We never really hear throughout the few episodes with Nicodemus in the gospel that he professes faith. We see a long conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus in chapter 3. That's where John 3.16, where Jesus is teaching him, for God so loved the world, right, that whoever believes will not perish. But, but we never find Nicodemus saying, okay, yes, I'm in. And yet he watched Jesus, he paid attention, he listened to his teaching, he had to sit in the room when he was condemned to die. He is somewhat culpable at the crucifixion. So we don't know what he wrestled with at night. We don't know what his divided heart felt like as he laid his, his head on the pillow and had to deal honestly with God. He had to live with that divided heart, and so did Joseph. You carry shame from being ashamed of the gospel. It's just a reality. I remember shortly after I came to faith that I had to kind of walk away from my peer group because I was so kind of dialed into drinking and using drugs, and I would get sucked back into it. And I didn't really connect very well with the church life and culture, and and I, I was lonely, and, you know, for the first time in ever, I'm literally 19, and I'm hanging out with my parents on Friday night, and they're kind of looking at me like, what is wrong with this kid? And he goes to church on Sunday, and he hangs out with us, and that was frightening. Um, and I remember, like, reconnecting with them and going out and getting drunk, and literally telling them, see, nothing is different about me. Like, I, I don't believe that, that, that Jesus hasn't done anything in my life. And literally denying my faith to my friends. And that haunted me. That, that I, like, returned out of my own loneliness, not wanting to pay the cost, and denying Jesus to these people. You carry that. And you're haunted by the possibility that Jesus would also be ashamed of you. He, we read this in Scripture that, that anyone that's ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him before my Father in heaven. And while I don't think Jesus is saying those things to, like, scare us into the kingdom, I do think we shouldn't write those hard passages off. I think hard words create soft hearts. And Jesus wants us to know that uh, he takes us really seriously. And I think he's asking us to take him just as seriously. And so what we end up doing in our secretness, in the shadows of our sort of discipleship that doesn't want to be public is that we give up the best for the good. Like, it's, yeah, if it's good. It's good that our life's a little bit easier. It's a little le less costly. But we're ultimately giving up the best. We're giving up the whole of the life of Jesus for just a little bit. And these are the silent wrestlings that the secret disciples go through.
And some of you know what I'm talking about because you go through them right now. And if that's the downside, then what changed? What would happen that would make Joseph and Nicodemus come out of the shadows? Now, Because remember, Jesus being crucified, all the disciples fled. Peter's fled. Uh, the 12 have fled. Everyone. And these two actually step up and out, go before Pilate, who has just condemned Jesus to die, and ask for his body. What happened? And we don't know for sure, but we can only speculate. But we do know that they went public with their faith. Normally, um, when Rome crucified criminals, they would be either left to eaten by dogs or they would be buried in unmarked graves. And Mark, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, uh, Joseph not only had the influence to ask Pilate for the body, but that he took the body down from the cross. Now we know that we know that Jesus was beaten so badly that it was difficult to tell if he was a, a man or an animal. That his back was ripped to shreds with 39 lashes. That he had the crown of thorns, that he was crucified, that he had a spear into his sides, that he was, he was an absolute bloody mess. And that blood literally covered Joseph's body as he carried Jesus off the cross. We know that Nicodemus, because of the amount of spices, 75 pounds of spices, that's the amount of a, for a royal burial. It's not just an average burial. It's the amount of spices to bury royalty, to bury a king. And so we're given indications that these two are publicly testifying in a sense when they ask for Jesus's body. It's put in Joseph's own grave. And while all the other disciples flee, they watch him die. Meaning they hear him cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They hear him cry, I thirst. They hear him quote the psalmist, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They hear him cry, into your hands I commit my spirit. They hear his final words, it is finished, which is the word tetelestai, which literally means paid in full. We don't know if they thought he would raise from the dead, but we do know that they were willing to publicly identify with Jesus who after being bloody and beaten and hanging, dying for six hours, stabbed in the side, they take him down, they bathe him, they prepare his body for burial in the tenderest, most compassionate act of servanthood. Not paying others, they could have paid others, but they themselves serving their crucified king, who they finally found the faith to stand up and identify themselves as his disciples. You see, I don't think you come out of the shadows, out of secret belief, 
until your eyes have actually opened and you see the lengths that Jesus went to come after you, to see how publicly and and violently, literally, he demonstrated his love for you. He was not secretive. He was not ashamed about his commitment to you. In fact, when we truly see how abused he was, how openly he was mocked and ridiculed, how brutally he was killed, all of it he did willingly, naked and bleeding before all creation, while you were still turned away from him, while I was still turned away from him. Why? Because he loves you. Jesus was not ashamed to die shamefully for your most shameful thoughts and actions because he loves you. Can you see him there? Because when you do see it, I mean really see Jesus lifted up there I believe you would happily, publicly confess, my God and my King, my God and my King. Because he was not ashamed to die a shameful death for you. Because he wanted not just to forgive you, but to share his very own relationship with his Father with you. One of the the last things he taught his disciple before he went to the cross was, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father is in me, so I am in you. He's going to the cross, not just so that you'll be forgiven, but so that you can be included in the relationship that he has with the Father. And so, yeah, he's going... If you see that, and when that makes sense to you, then you quit. You quit accepting the good, and you have to have the best, right? And so what is the cost? How do we count the cost of going public? Because there's going to be a cost, right? There's always a cost to leave behind that secretive faith, Um, the church is still going to be a mess. Just because you decide to take God seriously doesn't mean that the rest of us are going to. Uh, It would be great if we all decided at the same time to do it, but that's not how it works. But this is the thing that that I know about the church, and this is the answer, that the embarrassment we feel about the church is that it's so unlike Jesus. It's not because the church has gotten Christianity right and we're embarrassed about it. It's that the answer is the church needs to be more like Jesus. And when it's not, that makes us embarrassed. We need more Jesus, not less. And so paying whatever cost we pay to live in the way of Jesus, that's different than defending indefensible things that Christians do in Jesus' name. 
And for every scandal, every hypocrite, every bad witness, there are countless men and women who lay down their lives every day, who truly believe, who are filled with the Spirit, who live generous and hospitable lives of faithfulness, but they don't buy headlines, right? Because nobody, nobody cares about thoughtful people who open their house to foster children, like, they want scandals. But you know who does care is the father. They make headlines in the right place. And so whatever cost we do bear in this lifetime, in the words of Paul, they are nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul bore the cost, like not just like he got made fun of sometimes, which he did, but Paul's back, the scars on Paul's back are a literal like Google Maps of downtown San Francisco of scars, like 39 lashes twice. He was stoned to death twice and survived, left for dead and survived his it wasn't like he went in and got casts and like, you know, screws in his knees and it was all better. They just fused back how they fused back. And he was an old crippled up man limping with a bad eye and swollen joints. And he was saying it is worth nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Because the one who publicly endured this horrible death out of love for us didn't stay dead, right? He rolled back the stone on Joseph's tomb just a few days later. He's like, sir, I just borrowed it. You can have it back. And then he ascended into heaven, and he's sitting there right now as a man in a glorified human body at the Father's right hand, praying for you that you might persevere in faith. He's praying that he can completely save you, pouring the Spirit out into your heart. And so whatever cost we bear is nothing compared to the Jesus that we publicly call our own. And we can only do that because before we bear any cost, he bore the cost first, right? Before we love him, he loved us. And so today, I just want to invite you, wherever you're at, if you are a secret disciple, right, or a part-time secret disciple, step out of the shadows. Step out of the shadows. Give up that secret faith and make it public. One of the reasons the church is so badly branded is because we're not willing. The, a lot of people who are living faithful lives are being too quiet about it. In the same way that Jesus publicly demonstrated his love for you, what would it look like? if we stepped out publicly for him. What could that look like? For some of you, it might look like talking to your coworker about why you love Jesus 
For some of you, it might look like instead of the occasional coming on Sundays and wondering, like, actually jump in, learn to pray, learn to read the Bible. For some, it means counting the cost, turning from some of those things that you know you can't keep holding on to if you're going to follow Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus will show you. See, the lie that I think we buy into in the shadows is that we're more secure. It's more secure here. It's um, safer here. If we keep our faith secret, we'll be more fulfilled. We'll be safer. But it's just not true. It's the equivalent of saying, I got married, but we're not going to tell anybody. And, but we're going to be safe. It's going to be really happy. It's going to be awesome. Like, that's not, that's just super dysfunctional. That's all that is. <laughs> it's like, when we go to church, don't talk to me. I don't want anybody to know. Like, we're not going to tell anyone. It's, the joy of marriage is when you celebrate it, right? When your friends and your family knows and, and others know, or I'm married to this amazing person, and you enter into the fullness of that celebration and what that love really is. And that's why as we come to this table today, Jesus picks up the cup, right? And what's he say? This is the cup of the new covenant, the new marriage covenant, right? This is the union between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and you made with my blood. Now, don't be secret about it. Remember what it cost me. And I was unashamed to die shamefully for all the shameful things you did because I love you. So when you drink this, you remember that. Remember me. And then he took a piece of bread, like this simple meal, and he broke it. He said, this is about what's to happen to me. My body, you're going to see it. It's going to be broken. And when you taste the bread, you remember that it's broken for you. When you eat it, don't forget me. As the worship team comes, I just want to be able to spend some time praying for us today. That as we consider coming to this table, that we might that we might step out of the shadows a little bit. That we might be bold in our witness of Jesus, knowing that. It's because he first loved me, because he first loved you, that you now can love him. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters here especially those, God, who are your secret disciples. And you know who they are. And Father, I pray that 
today you would call them out of the shadows and into the light. Like Nicodemus and Joseph, that they would see you high and lifted up, Jesus. That they would be changed by the beauty of your love for them. That they would step out, no matter what the cost, knowing that it is because of your great love that they are willing to bear whatever cost comes their way. God, for all of us, there are those times and those places where we shrink back. But I thank you that you've never shrunken back from us. And so may we respond to you with courage and with boldness and never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. Because right now, you are reigning as our resurrected king. So keep praying for us, Jesus. Keep pouring your spirit out on us, Jesus. And meet us at this table by your spirit, I pray. And fill us with the courage to be faithful as we bear witness to your holy and beautiful name. It's in that name that we pray.